So Matthew chapter 2, we're going to press pause on our Philippians series for today and next Sunday. And as we begin this week, what's called Holy Week, I had it on my heart to share with you, to teach on some things that would serve all of us this week as we start looking towards Good Friday. Of course, we have our Good Friday service uh, this Friday at 7. Uh, but as we're looking forward to Good Friday, remembering the cross, as we're looking forward to next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, uh, celebrating what I believe is the greatest single event in the history of the world. Uh, as we're looking forward to these things, I, I just had it on my heart to share with you uh, some things from uh, the Word of God to help us to, to enrich our faith this week as this is an incredible week for us as believers in Jesus. And so today is typically known as Palm Sunday, and it's the Sunday in which Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem, rode into Jerusalem, uh, riding on a donkey. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to lay out for you some history that I think will help uh, with the bigger picture on uh, why this was such a big deal and help you see that it is more than just Jesus riding on a donkey. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time walking through Matthew's gospel, some selected readings from Matthew's gospel, and talking a little bit about the history that was leading up to this moment and what made this moment so monumentous and so great and, and worthy of us even remembering some 2,000 years later. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts today by your spirit. Lord, we want to hear from you. Help us, Lord, to, to hear your word and, and help us to live in light of your word. Let us not be foolish hearers only of your word, uh, but let us be doers of your word, putting into practice uh, what we read today. I pray that through our time in your word, that our hearts would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged, that you would help us to live as your people, as your chosen people, as your, your called out ones. Lord, that you have gathered us together today as your church. Help us, Lord, even as we leave this place to continue to live as your people, shining your light in the world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, we were going to start with a little bit of history uh, because none of these events that, that we're thinking about, reflecting on this week, none of them took place in a vacuum. They were actually the culmination of a grand story, a, a story that really began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We're not going to go back that far this morning. But I do want to start when Rome captured Jerusalem. Rome captured Jerusalem in about 63 B.C., so about 63 years before Christ was born, Rome came to power and, and, and captured Jerusalem. And so by the time of Christ, the time that the Christ is ministering, uh, we believe he began his public ministry around uh, the age of 30. So about the time that he's ministering and doing all of his miracles and all the wonderful things that he did for those three years of ministry... The Jews have been under Roman occupation and Roman oppression for nearly 100 years. For nearly a century, they had been under Roman rule and oppression. And there had been several uprisings, several revolts against Rome trying to cast them out of Jerusalem. 
However, Rome had squashed those severely and punished the, those who had rebelled uh, quite um, forcefully. And, and so even in, in Jesus' day, there was a whole political party, a whole persuasion, if you will, of the, the Jewish people called the Zealots. In fact, uh, Jesus, one of his own disciples, Simon, was part of this political persuasion, Simon the Zealot. And so in, in Jesus, even in his selection of disciples, he, he picked a, a, a group of people from a very diverse background because he had Matthew, the tax collector, who was working for Rome, and Simon the Zealot, who had pledged his life to overthrow Rome. And so there was this very interesting group of people that Jesus had picked uh, as among his disciples. And so nevertheless, there was a, a always on the surface, this, this hot animosity and this hot tension between the Jewish people, the populace, the general populace, and their oppressors in Rome. Now, one of the things that upset the Jewish people, the populace, so much was that Rome had appointed kings to rule over, be figureheads over the Jewish people. And we read about the kings, especially in the time of Jesus, uh, they were named Herod, King Herod. And so you have King Herod the Great, and you have his successor who was also King Herod, and then his son was also King Herod. And so it becomes a little bit confusing about which Herod it's talking about. However, the important thing to note is that these are Gentiles. They're not Jewish people that are, 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 are given authority to sit on, if you will, that, that very prestigious throne in Zion, which should have represented the kingdom of God. And so Rome puts in their own cronies. It's kind of this cronyism, their, their own friends, and they give them to rule over uh, the region of Jerusalem. Now, the first Herod, Herod the Great, he was an Edomite. Now, what you need to know about that is that those are descendants of Esau. And so this, this animosity that's happening goes all the way back to the wrestling that happened between Jacob and Esau in their mother's womb. And so they place, Rome places over the Jewish people a descendant of Esau, an Edomite, to rule over them. This man was called Herod the Great. And in Matthew chapter 2, we're introduced to this man, Herod the Great, when the wise men who saw the star visited Jerusalem searching for the Messiah that would be born. And I know that this makes for really good Christmas cards, but I want you to know that what's happening here is more like political intrigue and 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 than it is a Hallmark greeting card. And so in Matthew chapter two, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's Herod the great, the descendant of Esau that had been placed in to rule over the Jews in Jerusalem, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now, Herod the great is Technically, according to Rome, the king of the Jews. And so rolling into Jerusalem are these magi, these, these very wealthy princes, these, these wise men, these kings from the east, 
with their whole entourage and their gifts that they want to lay before the Messiah. And they roll into town and they say, where's the king of the Jews? And so they take them to Herod, who is the king of the Jews. And when they get there, they say, no, 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 you don't understand. We saw his star rise in the east and we have come to worship him. No, he's just been born. It can't be you. And especially it can't be you, Herod, because you're not the king of the Jews. You're not a descendant of Jacob, of Abraham. You're, you're not able to sit on the throne of David. So where is this king of the Jews that we're seeking? And so it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. And he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, would be born. Why does Herod have to inquire of the scribes and the priests to find out where the Messiah is to be born? Why doesn't he know, of course, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem? Well, because he's not a Jew. He's not part of this whole system. He's just ruling there as a figurehead instituted by Rome. And so they tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means are among the least of the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod sends him on his way, and they say, hey, he says, hey, when you find him, come back to me and tell me where I can find him, because I want to go and worship him too. Of course, this was his plan and plot to destroy this baby Messiah that had been born, who was a threat to him and his position of power. And so after the Magi, after the wise men find Jesus and give him the gifts, they're warned in a dream by an angel not to go back to Herod. And when Herod finds out that he has been tricked, that he has been duped, that they didn't come back and, and tell him the intel that he wanted, Herod dispatches swordsmen to Bethlehem to go and to slaughter every baby boy under the age of two. Now God had also warned Joseph in a dream and they had escaped to Egypt before that order could be dispatched. But in verse 16 it says, Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This man is vicious. This man is power hungry. This man will do anything that he can to, to, to stop any sort of rebellion against him and his position of power. Now, what you also need to know about Herod the Great is that he used his wealth and power to appease the Jewish leadership, not the people, but the leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees, by building them a new temple in Jerusalem. And so Herod rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem and he makes it so extravagant, so grand, so glorious and so all of the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, the Pharisees and the scribes, 
Those whose job it was to teach the people the word of God. Those whose job it was to, 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 to stand for righteousness and justice. They get into bed with King Herod. Because King Herod has lots of power and lots of money and lots of influence. And so these religious leaders are attracted to the power and they're attracted to the prestige. And they themselves begin to, you know, if, if you know, Herod's basically saying, if you can keep these, these, this populace from rebelling, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And so the Pharisees have become very prestigious and very wealthy. They've gotten wealthy off of their religion as they are keeping the people from rebelling against Rome. So the general populace is crying out for freedom from the oppression of the Roman rule and these Gentile kings, but the religious leaders in the time of Christ are very, very happy with the status quo. The religious leaders are not looking for a Messiah because they are in bed with Rome. Because if the Messiah shows up and lays claim as the king to the throne, guess who's out of power? They're gone. The Pharisees are gone. The Sadducees are gone. The scribes are gone because they had perverted worship. And so for a Messiah to come on the scene means that all of the religious leaders who had gotten into bed with Rome, they are gone too. Now we know that not all of them were corrupt. We read about a man named Nicodemus who visits Jesus at night. He's a Pharisee. He is seeking the kingdom of God, but by and large, the whole system had become corrupt. And so into this very charged environment, politically charged, religiously charged, there comes a prophet out in the wilderness. And this prophet in the wilderness, we know, of course, is John the Baptist. And out in the wilderness of Judea, this prophet begins to preach a message, lifting up his voice. And he begins to call the people to repentance. John the Baptist begins to preach against what has been going on preach against the excesses and the perversions and the twisting of the, the, the religious leaders that have gotten into bed with the political powers. And he begins to preach, repent. Why? Because he says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he begins to preach this message of repentance, this hard message of Repentance, we read about that in John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 3. Now some 30 years later, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Matthew gives us a, a commentary. He says, this is fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So John came to prepare the way for Jesus to come onto the scene, to prepare the way. He was the forerunner. He's calling the people back to stop following after the idolatrous ways of the Pharisees, even though they didn't set up physical idols, their idols were power, prestige, and money. 
and to start following God again. And in verse 7, it says that John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so he rebukes them. And in verse 10, he says, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, There is judgment coming on what you have done in Jerusalem. Verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The fire that's spoken here of the baptism that he's going to bring is not a good fire. It's actually a fire of judgment that he is going to pour out on this system that has become so corrupt as that it has uh, aligned itself with the ungodly system of Rome. So John's message is radical because John is preaching to God's people. He's preaching to the Jews and he's telling them, you must repent. You're going the wrong way. You're following the wrong path. Turn back to God. John follows in the, the great history and the great legacy of all of the Old Testament prophets that God sent to call his people back to himself. Prophets like Elisha and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, these prophets who were to call the people back to God that had turned away from following him. And John's message is likewise similar. The kingdom of God is at hand. Judgment is at hand. You must repent. John also was baptizing them, and this is also radical, because in those days, baptism was only practiced by a Gentile who was converting to Judaism. So if a Gentile wanted to be, be converted to Judaism, he would have to go through this process of cleansing, which culminated in him being baptized in water. But John is not baptizing Gentiles. John is saying, you Jewish people have become so corrupt. You must be baptized. You must be cleansed. You must turn back to God. This is the message that John came preaching. And he was preaching that you had to do it because God's kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is about to break into our world. Are you ready for it? Now the people were ready. They thought they were ready. And they were anticipating a king who would come and set them free from Rome and set them free from the Pharisees and come purify what had become so perverse in the worship of God. So they were looking for, they were waiting for. John is preaching about this, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, and they're so looking forward to it. Who is this Messiah that is coming? And in verse 13 of chapter 3, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying this is fulfilling what God had prophesied beforehand. So John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so through the, through the ministry of John, the Messiah, the Son of God, is identified is named. It is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the long-awaited King of Kings. And after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness and he is tempted there by the devil. And after 40 days, he emerges from that temptation victorious, not giving in to the temptation of Satan, but silencing the voice of Satan with the word of God. And after he comes out of the wilderness, what does Jesus begin doing? Well, in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins doing the exact same thing John was doing. He begins to preach, saying, repent, turn from your sin, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Jesus in John's gospel begins his ministry at a wedding feast in Cana, turning water into wine. But the very next thing that he does in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, is he visits Jerusalem for the Passover, and he goes in and he cleanses the temple. Jesus goes in John chapter 2, he sees what they're doing. He sees how they've perverted the worship of God. He sees how they've they're using God for profit, how they're enriching themselves off the backs of people that just want to come and worship the Lord, and how they've turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so Jesus is so incensed, he's so enraged at what he sees, he begins to throw over the tables of the money changers. He takes a, 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 a band of, of cords and he, he turns them into a whip and he begins to drive out the merchants that were buying and selling in God's house. He begins to drive out those who would profit off of the worship of God who had perverted God's house. We need to remember, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus... The Jesus that we serve is the one that flipped over tables and drove people out with a whip. We don't just serve meek, mild, Clark Kent Jesus. No, no, no. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We serve the one who is sovereign over all things. We serve the one who, from time to time, flips over some tables. Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of John by doing that. It's important that we take note of that. Then over the next three years, Jesus proves himself to be the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, it told us the kinds of things that the Messiah would do. He would open blind eyes. Jesus did that. Check. He would open the deaf ears. Jesus did that. He would make the lame walk. Jesus did that. 
Jesus fulfilled in his three years of ministry all of the requirements proving that he was the long-awaited king, that he was the Messiah. And as he does this, he is increasingly having these hostile confrontations with the leadership of the Jewish people because he is a threat to their power. He is a threat to their wealth. He is a threat to everything that they have built. Though they have built it in the back, on the back of God, they've built their own religious kingdom. He confronts them on their hypocrisy, on their perversion of justice, on their sin. And he did it. He began it by, begins his ministry by cleansing and cleaning out the temple. And for three years, he does what only God can do. He feeds the multitudes. He walks on water. All of this in John's gospel culminates with him raising Lazarus from the dead, calling a man who had been dead in the tomb for three days, calling him out of the tomb at his, at, at, with only the power of his voice, saying, Lazarus, come forth. This great miracle, this final culmination in Matthew and John's gospel of his, his sovereign power over life and death This miracle happened just about a week or so before the Passover that we're reading about today. It happened in Bethany, which is only two miles from Jerusalem. And so people had already begun to gather for the Passover at the time that Lazarus was raised from the dead. About two million Jews would gather in Jerusalem, Josephus tells us, for the Passover time. And so a great large number of people had witnessed the miracle that Jesus did. The news of that miracle began to spread. The people had held John the Baptist in in great esteem, believing that he was a prophet from God. And so a large group of the population believed that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. And they had heard about this final miracle that he had Done, And so now Passover time has come and two million people are flooding into Jerusalem and the air is filled with electricity about whether Jesus will come to the Passover. We know he was in Bethany last week. We know he was close. He called the dead man out of the tomb. Will Jesus come and institute the kingdom of God? And that's where we read in Matthew chapter 21 today. That's that's the history that that leads up to this moment. As he traveled, in in chapter 20, it tells us, as he was passing through Jericho, which is also very close to Jerusalem, With a great crowd following him, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. This is the end of chapter 20. When they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David was the title of the Messiah, the the one who God had promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that from David's own offspring, there would be a king established who would sit on David's throne. And rule upon 
uh, over God's people for all eternity, that this throne would be a throne without end, that this kingdom that would be established by this Messiah would be a kingdom without end. And these blind men, though they can't see with their natural eyes, they have the eyes of faith and they begin to call out upon Jesus saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You are the one that will establish the kingdom of God and rule and reign forever and ever. And so they're crying out to him for mercy. They say, have mercy on us. The crowd, again, that is following Jesus, rebuke the blind men. Say, hey, hush up. You're, you're kind of ruining our, our little Jesus party that we have going here. Which is to say that just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean we'll always get it right. There's a huge crowd of people following Jesus. Rebuke the blind men. Tell them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And he stopped. And Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. What an astonishing request. What faith. What faith that they are exercising in that moment the faith that they're putting in Jesus. And Jesus had pity on them and touched their eyes and immediately they re recovered their sight and they began to follow him. I mean, that happens just as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And now in chapter 21, it says, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was uh, spoken by the prophet. And here Matthew quotes from Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Here the prophecy is that the king will not come as a mighty conqueror. The king will not come riding on a horse to overthrow his enemies. Know that the king, the Messiah, the one that will sit on the throne of David the one that's been long awaited to establish the kingdom of God, he will come humble, riding on a donkey, a beast of burden. Verse six says, the disciples went as Jesus had directed them and they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, and put on them their cloaks and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These palms, these palm branches that they cut down, this, you need to understand that this was a symbol in, in the, the Jewish day of that time of nationalism, that the, the palm branch was used as sort of like for the United States, our bald eagle, right, as sort of that symbol of freedom. The palm branch was that for the children of Israel. You could find it in their coins. You could find it in their stone carvings. It's like when they, they, they see their king coming, it, it would be like 
a Fourth of July parade and everyone waving the American flag as they sit there and they, here is our king coming and they're all waving the palm branches. It's a very patriotic thing. It's a symbol of victory and, and of the Jewish people. And so they cut down the palm branches. The, the, in front of Jesus, they're laying out their coats. They're, they're waving these palm branches like flags. And the crowds went before him, verse 9, and that followed after him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now this word Hosanna, it means save now. Save us now. So as Jesus comes entering in, they're waving their flags. They're laying their coats down. They're shouting that Jesus is the king. The king, the son of David, the one who, whom we've been waiting for. Jesus, we've been waiting for you for three years to do this. And now he's coming into Jerusalem. He's not, he's not riding on a horse, but he's riding on a donkey, just as the scripture said. Now he's going to establish the kingdom of God. Now he's going to overthrow our, our oppressors in Rome. Now he's going to clean out this perversion of worship that's been happening through the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. The kingdom of God is here. Save us, save us. Jesus, the Messiah, save us. This great anticipation that they have it is finally happening. This hundred years of oppression is finally over. God's kingdom is finally going to be restored. Verse 10, it says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now I want you to see what happens next because this is Sunday and we know what happens on Friday. How, how, how does it go from this incredible scene of, of triumph, of victory, of the crowds loving him, of the crowds saying, you are our king. How does it go from here to on Friday, the crowd saying, we have no king but Caesar. How does it go from here to on Friday, the crowds not shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, but shouting, crucify him, crucify him. That's a big turnaround. What is it that happens between Sunday and Friday? Well, it begins to happen right here in verse 12. Notice where Jesus goes. Jesus doesn't go to Herod's palace and kick Herod out. Jesus doesn't go to the governor's estate. He doesn't go to Pilate and lead a rebellion against him. Where does Jesus go? Jesus goes to the temple again. Verse 12 it says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. 
And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were enraged. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? Jesus said to them, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants? God has perfected praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. You see, what happened over the next few days is that Jesus began more and more and more to confront the religious leaders. The crowds became impatient with Jesus. The crowds turned on him very quickly when he didn't do what they wanted him to do. It's very important that we understand this. Jesus did bring the kingdom of God. Jesus brought the kingdom. He brought the kingdom. But the kingdom that he brought was not the kingdom that the crowds wanted. They wanted a particular manifestation of the kingdom of God. They wanted a kingdom of God that manifests in the overthrow of Rome. But Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. Jesus didn't come to bring freedom from Rome. Jesus came to bring freedom from sin. The crowds wanted Jesus to deal with the external, but Jesus came to deal with the heart. Jesus said, out of the heart flows every form of sin and iniquity. And there are many people today that I believe come to Jesus with the same sort of mentality. They, they come to Jesus and they want Jesus. They have a list of things that they want Jesus to do. God, I'll serve you if you will fill in the blank. I'll serve God if he will prosper my business. I'll serve God if he will heal my mom. I'll serve God if he'll fix my marriage. I'll serve God if, if. And when we do that, we're just like the crowds. We're just like the crowds who would serve Jesus happily as long as Jesus did what they wanted him to do. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works. You see, Jesus is the king. And you do not serve the king on your terms. You serve the king on his terms. Jesus brought the kingdom of God. There's no doubt about it. And his kingdom that he established, that he rules and reigns over right now, on the throne of heaven right now, has been expanding, has been growing. From the moment he brought it into the world, it says that it will enter the world like yeast in a lump of dough. It starts in there so small, but soon enough it spreads. And one day, one day, the kingdom of God will cover the entire earth, the Bible says. That the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus brought the kingdom of God. 
And if you and I are a believer in Christ today, guess what? You and I are part of that kingdom. That kingdom that cannot be shaken. That kingdom that will never, ever end. Amen. The crowds, they didn't understand this because they were looking for a certain kind of Messiah. And when Jesus didn't fit their mold for a Messiah, they were, they were so easily swayed. And how many times, dear Christian, have we seen people swayed in that way? When they didn't get what they want, when God didn't answer the prayer the way they wanted him to answer it, they said, Jesus, you're not my Messiah anymore. The king is the king. The king does what is right and what is just all the time. And we must trust the king. There are times when when he's going to do things that doesn't make any sense to us. It didn't make any sense to the crowds what he was doing. It didn't make any sense why he wasn't going to Pilate and, and knocking on his door and leading a rebellion against Rome. It didn't make since they didn't understand God's plan, but what God was doing in that moment was bigger and better than anything they could have ever imagined. And we need to understand when we are in that, that test, when we are in that trial, when we pray and God does not answer the prayer we want the way we want it to be answered, let us not be like the crowds that forsook Jesus so easily. Let us realize that the king does what is good and what is best all the time. And hold on to what his word says. The king's word says that God works all things together for our good. For those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So let us love the king. Let us hold on to the king's word in the midst of the trial. Though we may have a different vision on how God should answer our prayers, we are not God. He is God. Something else that we see in in this, the actions of Jesus, is that Jesus lived not for the praise of man, but Jesus lived for the pleasure of God. The, the, The crowds could turn on him, and they did. But it did not change his determination to obey the will of his father. In the gospels it says when Jesus was was heading towards Jerusalem that he set his face like flint. He was so single-minded in his determination to accomplish the will of God. Even if it meant that the crowds, that the people, that that the people who once loved him and once praised him and once shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, even if he knew that just a few days later those same crowds would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, he didn't live for the praise of men. He lived for the pleasure and the glory of God. And you and I, dear friends, are likewise called to live that way. There may be times where the world may call us crazy, 
where we will be called old-fashioned, closed-minded, whatever. We don't live for the approval of men. We live for the glory of God. And so what we do may one day be in fashion with our family, and one day we may be condemned by our family. But we live for the king's glory. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we love the king by keeping his word. And we've seen over the last few decades, especially in few years, even more so that living for the king and the glory of Christ is at odds with the crowd or the mob. And we need to understand that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. But he said, take heart because I have overcome the world. The power of the enemy was broken at the cross. We need to stand on the cross. We need to stand for Christ. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. The Bible says no weapon formed against us will prosper. It doesn't mean that it won't hurt. It means that it will not accomplish that which it was set out to accomplish. But Jesus says, my words never return to me void. And they always accomplish what he sends them out to accomplish. So whichever way the world goes, whichever way the culture goes, it can go to the left, it can go to the right, it can go to the bottomless pit. We are going to live for the glory of the king. We're going to live for the glory of God, not the praise of man. They may like, they shouted of Jesus. They may shout, crucify them, crucify them, those Christians. They may use Christian as a pejorative term, just as they used it in the book of Acts. I counted a great badge of honor to, be, to bear his name, the name of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. For too long the church has been ashamed of the gospel, has been ashamed to be named with Christ. The church needs to stand with its king. And we need to understand, amen. We need to understand that the king is coming again. The next time the king comes, he's not riding on a donkey. He's not coming meek and mild. He's coming with a sword in his mouth. And he's coming to judge the living and the dead. The question is, are you ready for the king to return? The message to all of us today is the same message that the prophets preached. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached. It's the same message that Jesus preached. It's the same message that the church 
has preached through the ages. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. We do not know the day or the hour that the Lord will return. It could be any day. It could be any moment. It could be before we even get to the announcements today. And to that I say, Maranatha. I say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Are you ready? The only way to be ready is to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ and his work upon the cross. To put your faith not in your own works, which are as filthy rags, to put your faith in his perfect atoning work on the cross. And to trust in Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we pray today. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we call out to you just as they called out to you on that first Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, God, save us. You are our only hope. You are our only deliverer. There is none other than you. God, we thank you for the great salvation that you have brought to us, that you have set us free of sin, that you have set us free of bondage, that you have set us free of the kingdom of darkness, and that now, even now, we are under your rule and reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We remember your great sacrifice right now as we take of your communion table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.